Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays, the first Real Pod Wednesdays of the offseason, the first Real Pod Wednesdays of 2024, as Ohio State's 2023 season officially came to an end on Friday in the Cotton Bowl. And it certainly was not the end that Ohio State and its fans were hoping for, as Ohio State suffered a 14 to 3 loss to Missouri in what was the worst offensive performance we have seen in my time covering Ohio State for 11 Warriors. I, I joined Ohio, I joined 11 Warriors to start covering Ohio State before the 2017 season. Uh, that was also coincidentally Ryan Day's first year on staff as Ohio State's co-offensive coordinator at the time. Uh, he has, of course, been Ohio State's head coach since 2019. And in his seven years on staff, we had never seen anything close to what we saw on Friday in the Cotton Bowl in terms of an offensive performance from Ohio State. As the Buckeyes scored only three points on only 203 yards, both by far the lowest marks since Ryan Day joined the staff in 2017. I mean, to put it in one word, Andy, it was ugly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, you know, football's been around for over, you know, 100 years, 150 years, however long it's been. And you can go back as far as, you know, the old wing T days, the T formation days with Woody, the spread offenses, the modern era, wherever it is. One thing that's never changed is that if your offensive line implodes, you can't get things done up front. You're not winning the football game. Uh, f- football is still won and lost in the trenches. You know, as a former lineman, maybe I'm a bit biased in that perspective, but, you know, that's what happened in, in this Cotton Bowl. Ohio State could not get the job done up front. Uh, constant lapses, both in the run and pass games. I mean, you know, you look at the four sacks, the eight hurries, that's according to Stat Broadcast, which is usually pretty conservative when it comes to tracking quarterback hurries. Those can always be a sub- very subjective stat. Ten tackles for loss in this one. Ohio State, you know, the offensive line, they made the last-minute shuffle there, uh, put taking out Carson Hensman from the lineup. Apparently, had been practicing bad for a couple weeks in the run-up there and, you know, went on a podcast and said some things he probably shouldn't have as well. Who knows how much that actually played a factor, but you end up with Matt Jones at center, something they wanted to give him a chance to display his versatility for his NFL draft stock. And Enoch Vamahi at right guard. Enoch, we've talked to before as a person, someone you want to root for, sticking with the program for five years. And, you know, he used his platform to call for uh, donations to the Red Cross Disaster Relief Fund when his native Hawaii was hit with a series of wildfires earlier this year. But, you know, as unfortunately as it comes to football, as it comes to what was on the field, he was not um, at all up to the caliber you expect of an Ohio State offensive lineman in that moment at right guard and uh, entering his sixth year. We've seen, you know, we saw this year someone break out in his sixth year, Josh Proctor, but you, you wonder what uh, more can come of Enoch, you know, if, if that's what was shown to be there after all this time on Friday. And so, you know, that's where it started, but I also think there were many other areas that Ohio State fell short in this game, special teams, play calling, 
really just an all-around disaster outside of the defense, which eventually got gassed out by the disaster unfolding around it. Yeah, I asked our Matt Guttridge, who's been following Ohio State a lot longer than I have, if he's ever seen an Ohio State offensive line play as badly as it did in that game. And and his answer was, the only game that comes to mind is the 1998 Sugar Bowl against Florida State. And that was more because of a talent on the Seminoles defensive line than it was about Ohio State's offensive line being bad. And Give credit to Missouri. Uh, I think Blake Baker, Missouri's defensive coordinator, had a fantastic game plan for this game. But, you know, Missouri's defense did not come into this game as a world beater. I mean, this is not a Missouri defense, at least up front, that's loaded with a bunch of, you know, future first round picks on defense. And so there's really no excuse for why Ohio State should have played that poorly on the offensive line, especially with it being a position that's been such a question mark for Ohio State all year long. And we saw some growth down the stretch of a regular season, but you know, in the final game of the year, it, it just didn't show up and you know, really was the story of this game in, in terms of why the offense struggled so much. You know, certainly not having Kyle McCord and then having Devin Brown get injured in the first quarter was a big factor in the offense's struggles too. And we'll get more into that. But, you know, part of a problem for the quarterbacks was not as much of an experience as it was the fact that they almost never had any time to throw because, you know, rushers were going unblocked time and time again. And, you know, even when the offensive linemen were picking up blocks, a lot of times they were struggling to sustain them. And so, uh, you know, I, I think from an offensive line perspective, I think it was a failure, both in terms of personnel and scheme. And, you know, we, we talked about it, you know, going into last year. I mean, what were the two positions, question marks that we always talked about? They were quarterback and offensive line. And I think that proved very true in this final game of a season. And I think especially in terms of the offensive line, because again, I mean, at quarterback, there was an excuse here. I mean, for, for, for the final three quarters of the game, Ohio State was down to its third string quarterback, a true freshman who had never really played before. So you expected some clunkiness there. But for the offensive line, Ohio State didn't have any opt-outs on the offensive line. It didn't have any starting offensive lineman transfer. Like you said, they made a coach's decision to change up the starting lineup. But, you know, they had all their pieces available that they had for the entire season. And so why this happened, I mean, you know, there's really no excuse for it. It's just a matter of Ohio State failing to execute in its final game of the year. And as a result, you know, there's going to be a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths for the next eight months about the offensive line. And I don't necessarily expect Justin Fry to be fired for that performance, but it certainly puts him on the hot seat entering 2024. He's got a lot to prove, um, as might Ryan Day. You know, we, you and I both wrote columns on those two topics you know, earlier this week on 11 Warriors. I, I feel like this is the kind of line performance that makes it, and again, this is something I expressed in the column, is that you have to now evaluate every position and 
be aggressive in the transfer portal because you have to go out and get guys who can come in and compete and establish something for next year that you didn't have this year. You know, even if there's no can't miss guys that Ohio State can land up front, I think you at least need to generate some competition because clearly coming out of this game, it's nowhere near where it needs to be. You have a defense that was let down at the end of this year could be special next year if the right guys come back. We'll talk about that later. But this is an offensive line that needs addressed now. I think one of the things that bought Fry, buys Fry another year to figure it out is that they had a really strong line last year, particularly in pass protection. There were maybe some lapses in the run game you didn't want to see from them last year, but pass protection specifically... You lose two All-Americans from that line. Paris Johnson, one of the best tackles in college football last year. Dewan Jones, also excellent. Luke Whipler, I think, was a really underrated loss for this team. He was really steady and just a strong player at center. Hensman, you know, Carson Hensman had plenty of lapses, plenty of struggles throughout the year. He got better as the year went on, but then obviously enough going on behind the scenes in practice, whatever it was, to have him benched for this game. Not sure if that's going to bode well for his long-term future at Ohio State if he does return. I'd expect him to be the starting center next year if Ohio State doesn't bring anyone in. I mean, right now, the only other guy they really have on the roster is Josh Padilla that that has that experience at center, and he'll be entering his second season uh, at Ohio State. So, you know, this is these kinds of performances in such a moment where Ohio State was so motivated, clearly, to win this game. I don't think it was any matter of that the offensive line didn't want to play well. Um, and even if they didn't, I mean, you you watched in that game, we saw Cade Stover uh, just lighting them up there before halftime, laying into guys and pleading with them to get going. I mean... This, if, if nothing else, it was clear that their teammates on offense were very much invested in trying to get just some a couple of seconds for Keen, Lincoln Keenholz. Look, I don't even think Keenholz played that bad in this game. The stat line would suggest otherwise. Obviously, six of 17, 86 yards, but he had a couple nice throws in there. And it's, it's just, Dan, he didn't even have two seconds to plant his feet when Missouri sent four guys. There were a lot of really good blitz schemes that Missouri came with in this game, but they could rush four and be in his lap just as quickly, it seemed like. I mean, there was one play where the entire right side of Ohio State's offensive line collapses as Enoch misses totally whips on a block on the inside. Josh Fryer gets beat around the edge, and there's two unblocked guys on a four-man rush. I mean, that just can't happen. Um, Josh Fryer, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on the offensive line, if you can't tell, and I've expressed many of them many of them in my column. Um, Josh Fryer is one other guy I wanted to talk about. I really like Josh Fryer as a guard. Um, I think he showed all year a lot of punch in the running game, and it's why he made all Big Ten teams as he did showed he could handle power rushes pretty well on on the edge, but anytime he faced someone with true speed and these Missouri defensive ends had true speed, he was liable to get beat around the edge. And it happened several times in this game. It happened many other times throughout the season. Um, I honestly think he's, he's a really good guard playing tackle right now. Um, It kind of like, you know, you remember a couple years ago, they had tackles playing guard. It's the inverse problem with Josh. He's, he's got, 
He just doesn't have the feet to be out there, but he has the the punch and the build to handle power rushes from defensive tackles fine, I think. And like I said, a great punch in the running game, which is what you want at that position. So uh, for me, I think him playing out of position, obviously the shuffle that happened didn't work out. Didn't work out. Uh, Josh Simmons had his worst game in a while. Just at, across the board, a, a real failure from this offensive line. If you guys can't tell, Andy's a former offensive lineman. <laughs> that wasn't clear. We were yeah, really thinking so. Yeah, Andy. Andy is uh, certainly passionate about the offensive line, and certainly reason to be passionate about the offensive line after that game. Because, because, like you said, I mean, it, it it starts and finishes in the trenches in in this sport, you know. And I was thinking about it, you know, even on Monday as I was watching those great, you know, college football playoff semifinal games. And you know, on one hand, I'm watching. Michigan go to overtime with Alabama and then ultimately winning that game and going to the national championship. And you're thinking, man, like Ohio State was not far off from beating Michigan. And if Ohio State could have beat Michigan, then maybe Ohio State's playing for a national championship right now. But then I thought Ohio State wasn't winning any national championship of that offensive line because I mean, they, they, <laughs> they couldn't even, I mean, they couldn't even score three points or more than three points against Missouri. And granted, I think, you know, if they had a more experienced quarterback, if they had Marvin Harrison Jr., do I think they probably score more than three points? Yeah, but probably not a lot more with the way the offensive line played in that game because, you know, I, to your point, and I think this was especially true, you know, after, you know, re-watching the game and getting to really, you know, study the plays, I don't think Lincoln Keenholz necessarily played badly in that game I think a lot of it was just he was under constant pressure I think the rare occasions where he had time to throw you saw him make some nice throws he 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 had some misses too I mean there were a couple throws I think in particular but I noticed to Carnell Tate where they were about 10 yard throws and and he threw them a little bit too short and so you know Lincoln Keenholes did look like a freshman in that game but I think you could see glimpses of his potential to be a great quarterback. You just didn't get a chance for him to really show it because of how poor the pass protection was. And so as we kind of pivot to talking about quarterbacks here, I think, you know, really the the big takeaway I have on the quarterbacks coming out of a cotton bowl is just that we just don't know. You know, I think the hope was you'd come out of a cotton bowl with a more of an answer on whether Devin Brown could be Ohio State's guy next year. And I think the answer is we just didn't get that answer because unfortunately on Ohio State's fair drive of a game on a sack where a rusher came unblocked, which was a common theme in this game, Devin's uh, left ankle I think it was it was either left or right. It was it was the ankle that he didn't hurt against Penn State. It was the other one. It was left. Yeah, yeah. you you know I struggle with left and right, but (laughs) it was the left ankle. He got that caught in the turf, suffers a high ankle sprain, knocks him out of a game. He did stay in for another drive, but was clearly hobbled before he went back to the locker room and got diagnosed with that injury. And then Lincoln Keenholes came in, but you know the, the couple drives that Devin did play before that injury, he didn't look great, but. I don't think you can really evaluate him based on that because he just didn't have enough time. If there wasn't enough of a sample size to really evaluate him in that game, you know, I think we both agreed that 
you know, if he gets a chance to play a full game and if he had a better offensive line in front of him, you know, maybe he's able to get into a rhythm and maybe, you know, we see more of Devin Brown's talent. And so, you know, I don't, I don't come out of that game necessarily feeling worse about Devin Brown and Lincoln Keenholes than I did going in. The problem is I don't feel better about them either because we didn't get a chance to see them really show what they can do. So now as we pivot forward to the off season and what's next for Ohio state, that's why a lot of people are talking about former Kansas state quarterback, Will Howard right now, because you know, I, I had heard before the cotton bowl that Ohio state was in communication with Will Howard, but that it wouldn't make a final decision on that until after the cotton bowl. Now, you know, I have not heard as we sit here Tuesday afternoon, obviously things can change quickly, but as we're recording here on Tuesday afternoon, you know, I have not heard one way or the other yet as to whether Will Howard will end up committing to the Buckeyes. But I certainly don't think that, I think that if Ohio state was already leaning in that direction, which I think it was, then I don't think anything they would have seen in the cotton bowl would deter them from making that move now. Certainly not. I mean, uh, what what is there to evaluate, Dan? I mean, there were 11 total completed passes in this game from Ohio State. And, you know, Devin Brown, uh, he just didn't get the chance to show what he could do. But I didn't do much impressive while he was in there. It's I feel like you have to go out and get a transfer when you have so much unknown and nothing to evaluate in these game reps with Devin. You need the competition if it means that someone ends up transferring out because they're behind in that competition, then that might have to be the case too because again, it's not we talk about it every year. You've got to go out and do what's best for the current roster, whatever next year's team is. And, you know, if if I think bringing in Will Howard is an upgrade in the sense that you know he can play at a certain level. He has a certain floor. Both Devin Brown and Lincoln Keenholz's ceilings are higher, in my opinion, but you don't know how long it's going to take for them to get there, what level of play they can sustain. Uh, I think Howard's a more proven asset, and you have to have at least an answer at quarterback here. And I mean... The injury concerns too with Devin. Uh, it's it's not good to you know be dealing with multiple ankle injuries in one season like this. Who's to say if it'll be a long term thing or not that he he's going to have continued durability issues or whatever? But you know, uh, as far as just the raw numbers for me, Will Howard not as impressive as as Cam Ward. I, I know that obviously Ohio State's evaluation they they know how to evaluate a quarterback better than I do. But for, you know, you and I both thought Cam Ward was the was made the most sense for this team. I, I look at Will Howard, and yes, he's going to have better weapons in Columbus um, to throw to than he had in Kansas State. But he's also going to be playing Big Ten defenses, which I think are a step above Big 12 defenses. So there's some balancing out there. 7.4 yards per, t- per attempt this season, and in yards per attempt is kind of the first number you look at, at least among basic stats when you're evaluating quarterbacks these days. Kyle McCord had 9.1 yards per attempt this year. That's a drop off of 1.7 there. Will Howard, this was his first season ever completing more than 60% of his throws. He completed 61% of his throws. Uh, it's been a while since an Ohio State quarterback, a uh, full-time starting quarterback, completed that few percentage of his passes in a season 
2,600 yards is fine. Uh, if, you, if you're looking at the aggregate numbers there, uh, 24 touchdowns, 10 picks. Kyle McCord only threw six interceptions this year, had the same number of touchdowns at 24. Then, you know, you use Kyle McCord as the barometer because he beat Devin Brown in a competition this, this camp ultimately. And Ohio State wants an upgrade at quarterback over what it had this year. Well, that's what it had this year. Uh, so I think it's fair to compare kind of where those two stand numerically. Could, again, Will could take a big jump this year. He is going to be throwing to better receivers, but against better defenses, I think. And for me, it just doesn't do it the same way Cam Ward would have. Dan, where do you stand on that? Well, you know, first of all, you know, Cam Ward just declared for the NFL draft. And so I think that speaks to why Ohio State was never really in on Cam Ward, because I think maybe Ohio State realized that probably wasn't ever going to get Cam Ward. So I, I I don't know that we can make that as an, you know, apples to apples comparison of quarterbacks because Cam Ward didn't even end up staying in college. So that that's a factor. You know, it, it's not just as simple as saying, well, that guy was better. They should have got him. There's there's a bunch of different factors that, that go into this, um, whether it be, you know, again, I mean, it's, it's not just, oh, we pick the guy we want and we draft him. You know, the guy's got to want to come there. NIL is certainly a factor in all of these equations. Uh, you know, it could be a matter of, you know, a guy wanting a guaranteed starting job versus a guy, you know, being willing to come in and compete. And so those are all things that, factor into you know who Ohio State might ultimately add as a transfer quarterback if it chooses to do so but I I do agree that I mean I I think you know if you're comparing like Will Howard what he could be for Ohio State next year versus what Kyle McCord could have been next year I don't know if that's going to end up being an upgrade I mean I think the one the one clear area where you you could look at as an upgrade is Will Howard's a better athlete. Will Howard, uh, he has over 900 rushing yards for his career. He He's going to give, if Ohio State gets him, he would give Ohio State more of a fret with, its, with his legs than they had with Kyle McCord. The same is true with Devin Brown and Lincoln Keenholz. And so I think that is something that can help Ohio State's defense is having someone who can do more athletically than Kyle McCord did. And I think, you know, Will Howard would check that box. But as a passer, I, 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 I agree that I think, you know, to, to say that he's going to be a clear upgrade over Kyle McCord, I can't do that right now. I, I, I think the tools are there that, that Will Howard could be one of the best quarterbacks in the country when you, when you put him in Ohio State's offense. Now, a lot of that is going to go back to the offensive line again, is, you know, is the offensive line going to be an improvement to where he's going to have better protection and be able to make more plays. He is going to have more talent at receiver. Like you said, some of that gets canceled out by potentially playing better defenses. And so I think will Howard, you know, and again, we talk about that Howard versus McCord comparison. Again, it's not as simple as just saying Ohio state is choosing will Howard over Kyle McCord because Ohio state wanted Kyle McCord to stay for another year. Kyle chose not to stay because he didn't want to have to compete for the job and he wanted to get more NIL money than he was going to get at Ohio State. And so, you know, with, with, you know, this decision to bring in Will Howard now, you, you have, or or potentially bring in Will Howard now, you, you have to go off of where your roster stands as it is currently. And the reality right now is Ohio State doesn't have any sure thing at all at quarterback right now. And so I think the 
possibility of bringing in a quarterback who has, I believe, 27 games of starting experience at, at Kansas State. He was a second-team All-Big Ten player uh, this this past season. He led Kansas State to a Big 12 championship two years ago. He's He has a proven track record that he can make plays with his arm and his legs and that he can win big games. And so I think that experience is something that is appealing to Ohio State. I don't think, you know, I think when Ohio State brought in Justin Fields, you know, even though he was inexperienced, just because you, you knew how much talent he had, that felt like a clear home run for Ohio State. I don't, I don't think that bringing in Will Howard is going to have that same feel if it happens. But I do think it's logical based on the quarterback roster Ohio State has right now, simply because you just don't really know right now what you have in Devin Brown and Lincoln Keenholes. And to your point about Devin's injuries, I, I, I feel for Devin because it feels like, you know, every time he's had a chance this year, he's gotten set back by an injury. You know, first it was the spring, he's neck and neck with Kyle, and then he gets hurt and he's not able to play in a spring game. You know, then, you know, middle of the season, Ohio State's finally carving out a role for him as that red zone quarterback. And then he gets hurt. He misses the rest of regular season. Then he, he finally gets his opportunity to make his first career start in the Cotton Bowl. And he gets hurt in the first quarter. And so I feel, I feel for Devin because, you know, he, 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 every time he's kind of gotten an opportunity to showcase himself, it, it's gotten taken away from him quickly. To your point, though, that is something Ohio State has to consider is we don't know yet if this guy can, can play a full season for us because these injuries have been an issue. Maybe it's bad luck. Maybe he's more inclined toward injuries than others. That's hard to say. You just don't know. But, you know, it is a factor that Ohio State has to consider. You know, I think I, 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 I'm still optimistic about Lincoln Keenholz's potential future as an Ohio State quarterback. But I don't know if it's going to be next year. I think maybe he needs another year of development before you'd feel real comfortable uh, making him your starting quarterback. I think Aaron Nolan has a ton of talent, but I don't think you want to be banking on a true freshman to come in and be your immediate starter. And I think all of that also has to be looked through the vein that Ryan Day is now entering what could be the most important year of his career as Ohio State's head coach because Ohio State is now coming off of three straight 11-2 and two seasons they have gone three years in a row without achieving any of their major goals. And after that performance we saw from the offense, which is supposed to be his area of expertise in the Cotton Bowl, I don't think it's a stretch to say that 2024 could be a make or break year for Ryan Day, especially when you factor in the fact that a new athletic director is going to be coming in next summer. If you're Ryan Day, you have to make the moves right now that give you the best chance to win in 2024. And so if I'm in Ryan Day's shoes, I, I think I too would be very tempted to want to add a veteran quarterback who at least has that experience and who I know, you know, can play at a solid level, at a high level, collegiate level rather than banking my future on a quarterback who really hasn't played at the collegiate level and who you really don't know if he's going to be ready next year. As you said, um, and again, wrote a great story about, this is definitely going to be a make or break year for Ryan. 
Um, and I think it also segues perfectly into the discussion about staff change because, like, you know, going back to your point about, you know, Ryan Day is supposed to be this offensive guru. We, we talked about all the lapses that happened, right? Obviously, you get down to your third string quarterback, the offensive line playing how it played, as we, we've talked about at length now. But where I just didn't feel like the play calls in the game were doing things to kind of take some of the weight off of those sho- the shoulders of those position groups. Your offensive line can't give your quarterback time to throw the ball. Why are you still calling a play-action pass with seven protectors and two routes that are actually out in pattern, but they're both deep balls? Like, you're, you're trying to give your quarter... You're trying to do longer developing plays with routes down the field with a new quarterback and an offensive line who can't protect um, continuing to run a lot of the same running plays that hadn't been working earlier in the game. Where is a Where's a good old crossing route. Remember when those were a staple of the over Ryan day offense, Dan, where they, they used to throw crossing routes over the middle to guys coming across the field. I mean, I, I big absence of that. Um, they did some stuff later in the game. Maybe they had a fourth and two conversion to a Mecca Buka um, come over, coming over the middle. That was nice. They, they did a, a thing here or two in that game, but it really needed to be in the second half adjusting to a quick passing game, maybe some more screens to slow up that pass rush. I know they, they tried some screens earlier in the game that didn't find much success, but you know, you, you've got to figure out a way to try and work around this deficiency you have up front because it just, it was never going to get to that point where Lincoln could sit back in the pocket and find a guy 40 yards downfield. And those were the kinds of plays that Ohio state tried to keep running at various times in this game. There's more on a head coach's plate now than there's ever been December. This December was the most hectic December I can ever remember covering from an off the field perspective. Um, when you talk about what's going on with the transfer portal, NIL, early signing day was a complete, <laughs> we all remember it was a cacophony with the Edric Houston and Jeremiah Smith recruitments playing out the way they did. Um, Jeremiah McClellan to a certain extent as well. So, I, I, you know, I think that with all that in mind, it was clear in this game, Ryan didn't have the same game plan, the same prep time that he normally does. Some of his best game plans have come in bowl games before. Look back at what he did to Georgia's defense last year. Look back at what they did to Clemson back in that Sugar Bowl during the COVID year. Utah, the Rose Bowl in 2021. They have had some incredible game plans for these bowl games, and that just wasn't the case against Missouri. You know, Adversity comes. It's not just on the players to, to handle it. It's on the coach to say, okay, this thing that we're doing isn't working. We have this weakness. How do we try to counteract that? And I just, I, I think a lot of the play calls that could have helped open things up when you have a porous offensive line like that just weren't happening. And, you know, it goes, all goes to say, Brian Day needs his Jim Knowles, but on offense. He is, he needs to step back fully into that CEO role and let someone handle the play calling, handle a lot of the schematics. That guy thought it might be Brian Hartline this past year, but it didn't seem like Day ever really entrusted him fully to run the offense. So I I think that is 
one of the biggest coaching changes you look at this offseason is trying to get that guy on offense who can take the schematics off of Day's plate in a big way. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, and it's not just because of this one game. I and mean, this one game exacerbated it and should probably be the final straw for it. But, you know, I mean, I think if you if we just go back through all the big games this year, Notre Dame, Penn State, Michigan, Missouri, would you agree with me that the game plans in all of those games left a lot to be desired? Yes. So I think that speaks a lot to your point, Andy, that head coaches have more on their plates now than they've ever had before. And in Ryan Day's first two or three years, I think it was feasible for him to continue coaching the offense, coaching the quarterbacks, and be the head coach all at once. And I think we saw the results of that, where Ohio State had an elite offense. And really through last year, Ryan Day doing things that way, Ohio State always had an elite offense and elite quarterback play. So you really couldn't question the results. And that's why, for, for me, when we were talking about this a year ago, at that point, I really was not on the side of Ryan Day needs to give up play calling. I, I was more on the side of as long as Ohio State keeps pumping out elite offenses and elite quarterback play every year, then Ryan Day should keep handling those things himself. But neither of those things happened this year. I mean, you're talking about an offense that in Ryan Day's first six years on staff, Ohio State was in the top 11 every single year in both scoring offense and total offense. This year, Ohio State's barely inside the top 50 in both categories. And so that speaks to the need for a change. And I think your Jim Knowles comparison is an apt one because we've seen it before with Ryan Day. You know, I, I know a lot of the comments from Ohio State fans over the past week have been, you know, is Ryan Day willing to change? And, and, and I understand where that's coming from because Ryan Day at this time last year publicly said, he was thinking about stepping back into a CEO role and letting someone else call the offensive plays, and then he didn't do it. And so there is very much a see-it-when-you-believe-it sentiment at this point with whether Ryan Day will actually give up play-calling duties and hire someone to handle that part of the equation. But I do believe that now is the time that he should. I mean, it... I think we were both thinking the same thing as we were sitting there in that press conference on Thursday. And Eli Drinkwitz gets asked a question about why he gave up offensive play calling this year from a Missouri reporter. And I don't think there was any intent toward e from Eli Drinkwitz to throw shade at Ryan Day. I don't think he even thought of it this way. I think he was just answering the question honestly. But as he was answering that question, he said, basically, I had to put my ego aside. And I had to hire someone else to call the offensive plays so that I could spend more time running my program and, and handling everything else that needs to happen as a head coach. And I was just wondering what's going through Ryan Tay's mind as he's sitting there and, and hearing that. And then to follow that up the next day with the worst, worst offensive performance from Ohio State in seven years, I think just really kind of exacerbated that point that it's time for a change, you know? And I think, you know, realistically, I mean, I think Brian Hartline, elite wide receiver coach, elite recruiter. I think Brian Hartline was promoted to offensive coordinator last year because Ohio State wanted to keep their star receiver coach and recruiter happy. 
I don't think Brian Hartline was promoted to offensive coordinator last year because he was ready to run Ohio State's offense. You know, I mean, this is, it's one of the biggest programs in the country. You really need someone running the offense who has experience doing that before. And so, you know, I, I think losing Kevin Wilson was a significant loss, even if he wasn't the one calling the plays. And I think Ohio State needs to bring in another experienced coach. I think ideally someone who's been both an offensive coordinator and a quarterback's coach to take Corey Dennis's spot on staff and then to, to be the guy who calls the plays for the offense and leads the development of a quarterbacks. Because right now, Ryan Day is trying to do all three of those things at once. And I think that's leading to issues, you know, not only in the offense, but I think it also then leads to issues in terms of just running the program because he's, he's doing so many different things at once that he, he can't always devote as much time as he needs to to his other responsibilities as a head coach. And so I think if Ohio State can find, like you called it, that Jim Knowles for the offense to run the offense and coach for quarterbacks, I think that has the potential to solve a lot of problems. I think it's a clear change. Um, but you know, I, we, we've talked now about just how big a make or break year this is for day. And it, it lends to the discussion of exactly how warm, you know, day's seat should be. Entering 2024, you know, it, it's this is three straight years of Ohio State not achieving any of its goals. Uh, you know, the goals Ryan Day states beat Michigan, win the Big Ten, win a national championship. Haven't done any of those three the last three years. But at the same time, of course, a guy who still has never lost more than two games in a season, 53 and eight all time as a head coach uh, at Ohio State full time, you know, and Ohio State has always uh, been in kind of that contention uh, for the playoff. You imagine where the program is now, at least the first set of years under Ryan Day here. They, it, it's going to be hard for them to miss the playoffs going forward if they maintain this level of play. I mean, you'd have to lose three, maybe four games in a season, which Again, that's the regular season, and they've never come close to doing that under Day. So, you know, how warm do you think Day's seat should be in 2024, Dan? And uh, I guess kind of thinking ahead, way ahead, what what would it take for him to lose his job after this season in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question to answer. And one thing that makes it tough is we don't know who the athletic director is going to be yet. You know, I think... One of the biggest reasons why his job still feels very safe right now is because Gene Smith is still the athletic director. And Gene Smith has always been patient. He's always been someone who's been loyal to the people he hires. And so, you know, Gene Smith's not the kind of guy who's going to make a rash decision on a head coach because of fan outcry. I mean, we've had this discussion before with Chris Holtman in terms of the basketball program, and a lot of fans have wanted him fired, and, and Gene has consistently stood by him. And so I, I think, you know, as long as Gene's been here, Day's job has felt very secure. I think when a new AD comes in next year, that potentially changes the equation. I mean, that's true for Chris Holtman, too, when we start talking more about basketball. But in terms of, you know, football, you know, that changes the equation of, you know, it depends, you know, will, will the new AD be someone who, you know, has worked for Gene Smith before, who already has a relationship with Ryan Day? If it's somebody like that, that probably increases Day's job security for next year. If it's somebody who 
doesn't have any existing relationship with day and is coming in and maybe has an interest in making some more changes, then, you know, his, his job security decreases significantly. And so, you know, I don't think you can put like a clear, like if this happens, day keeps his job. If this doesn't happen, day gets fired. I I do think when you talk about minimum expectations for next year, though, they should be beating Michigan and making the CFP. And I think, you know, if we're talking about those two goals, I think making the CFP is the easier one of those goals now, because with the playoff expanding to 12 teams, there is a little bit of margin for error there. You know, Ohio State can go 10-2, and it's probably making a playoff. Whereas, you know, Michigan, I mean, they're playing in a national championship game on Monday. They have become an elite program in college football. The past three years have made that clear. And yes, Michigan is going to lose a lot of seniors after this year. And I think because of that, Ohio State should be positioned to where playing Michigan at home next season, Ohio State should be able to beat Michigan. And again, I will make clear, like that should be the expectation. Day's seat should be warm going into this year because of the fact that he's lost to Michigan for years in a row. And because of the fact that, you know, he's the one putting those goals out there. You know, I think something I wrestle with and probably a lot of people wrestle with is just how insanely high the expectations are for an Ohio State head coach and how I don't know if at any other school we would be having this conversation right now. I mean, we're, we talk about Michigan. Jim Harbaugh started 0-5 against Ohio State. You know, Jim Harbaugh, what what he's done these past three years have been in his seventh through ninth years as Michigan's head coach. I mean, you look at Kirby Smart, what he's doing. He was not having this kind of success in his first five years at Georgia. And so, you you know, you, you think about that and it seems crazy to even have the conversation about firing a coach who's 53 and eight in the past five years. but. It's also true that, you know, he inherited a program that was already built to win the vast majority of its games. So that increases the expectations right there. And then again, Ryan Day's the one he's saying it himself. The goals are to beat Michigan, win the Big Ten, win the national championship. And granted, he didn't necessarily create those goals. He inherited those goals from Urban Meyer, and that's the burden that he has to take on. But it doesn't change the fact that those goals have been stated time and time again. And so because of that, we have to measure him based upon those goals. And the reality is he hasn't achieved those goals for the past three years. And so I'm not going to say he has to achieve all of those goals next year to, to keep his job, but you certainly want to see him achieve at least one. I mean, if you're going into next year, if you're going into 2025, four years in a row, Ohio State hasn't achieved any of the major goals it set out for itself then I think it is realistic to talk about the possibility of a change. You know, will it happen? It's really hard to say because of the fact that, you know, Ohio State still has to hire a new athletic director first. But, you know, it, 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 you know the, the expectations at Ohio State are probably higher than they are anywhere else in the country. That's just the way it is. I think Ryan Day understands that as well as anyone. and. It's not easy, but he's going to have to find a way to start achieving those goals again in 2024. Or I think a year from now, we, we will be having a very real conversation about whether Ryan Day is still going to be Ohio State's head coach. 
that's where I stand it on it too. And it, it's quite an intricate conversation, but I don't think, you know, Michigan should be losing a lot this off season in terms of players. There's a chance they're getting hit with a lot of sanctions too, after all the allegations of sign stealing and, you know, everything that's gone around the program. I, so I don't feel like next year he can afford to lose to Michigan at home if he doesn't want his seat to become truly hot. I, I think oftentimes the first year for any new athletic director, um, regardless of, you know, there's a previous connection with Gene, with the program, with Day, whatever it is, the new athletic director in that first year has to come in and evaluate where everything stands at Ohio State, but in particularly, particular with the key programs, you know, and that's football first and foremost at Ohio State, and then basketball next, and then you kind of go from there. But, you know, it's the athletic director's job to make sure that all those programs have the best opportunity to succeed. And so I, I think there's there's going to be a year of relationship building and evaluation from whoever this new AD is. So that to me would lend itself more toward not as secure a job for day. Because if you know, you have a bad year and your first year under this new AD, that new AD might want to make a name for his or herself and go out and hire a, their, their own head coach. So I, I really think Michigan beating Michigan next year is where it starts for Ryan, again, especially when you're at home in that game and you go from there, beating Michigan, making the playoffs, that's the minimum, as you said, Dan. Uh, and if he doesn't achieve those things, then I think it will be time to have that conversation about, you know, does he return in 2025? For now, I think after this year, he's... Uh, He's got the job, obviously. I don't think we're having any conversations about considering whether he should be fired this year, per se. But um, it's definitely getting to that point. And, you know, we've said it multiple times now, just a, a make or break year coming up here for Ryan Day. And I'm sure there's some people out there that are listening and are probably wondering, like, why are we being harder on Ryan Day now than we were a month ago? Because... You know, even if Ohio State had won the Cotton Bowl, it wouldn't have changed the fact that he didn't achieve those goals. But I think from my perspective, a, a lot of it does go back to the fact that, you know, the offense is where he's supposed to fry. And now that part of Ohio State has hit a rock bottom level that it has not been at in his tenure. And so I think you know, that makes me at least look at day a little bit more critically because those are the areas where he's supposed to shine. And if Ohio State's not shining in those areas, then you start to have to question more of what he's bringing to the table. And so I, you know, I give him credit for Ohio State's defensive turnaround. Yes, Jim Knowles is the leader of that effort. But I give him credit because two years ago, when it was clear a change had to be made on defense, Ryan Day made the necessary changes, and those necessary changes have now paid off. Because I know we both agree, Ohio State's defense is not the reason why the Buckeyes lost this game. Yes, they gave up a couple long touchdown drives in the fourth quarter, but they were gassed because the offense couldn't sustain a drive all game. We had said before the game that holding Missouri under 20 points would be a clear success, and Ohio State held Missouri to 14 points. And so I think the defense played great. Yeah, not a great finish, but 
it's not their fault. They got no help from the offense. They also got no help from the special teams. And so when we talk about more immediate changes, I think we both agree, you know, along with the need to make some tough changes on offense, the other change that needs to happen is it's time for Ohio State to move on from Parker Fleming because there's just no justification for it right now. He's been on staff for three years. The special team's play has consistently been substandard. There's just nothing you can point to right now that would justify continuing to use one of your 10 full-time coaching staff spots on a full-time special teams coordinator when the special teams play has been far from elite. Not just, you know, using that spot, but giving him a raise last offseason. The special teams were bad in this game. Um, Just, again, I mentioned earlier just how everything around the defense seemed to work against the defense, and yet they still stepped up and had... You know, if Ohio State would have won this game, this would go down as a legendary defensive performance, similar to how the 2021 Rose Bowl against Utah was, you know, a legendary offensive performance for Ohio State history. Um, But it was, you know, (laughs) at least the defense had like a nice third quarter against Utah. The offense couldn't sustain a drive like ever in this game. So, um, like you said, gassed them out. But the first nine Missouri drives all failed to yield points for the Tigers. And seven of them started at Missouri's own 37 or better. Three of them started in Missouri territory. The defense managed to get stops every single time, despite being screwed over by its special teams uh, in those in losing that field position battle because they only allowed Missouri to have 2.8 yards per play. Iowa, the worst yard per play offense in the country this year, who else, averages four yards per play. So, uh, you know, this was... The defense was dominating so well against an offense that we talked about all up to the bowl as being prolific, um, as having all these weapons. This was a marquee performance from the defense, particularly from Jack Sawyer with the three sacks tying an Ohio State bowl record and a guy that I had been trumpeting before, you know, uh, I think. He was all season you saw from Jack, just he got better and he was constantly doing a lot of the things that aren't heralded as a defensive end, particularly being an elite run defender. Didn't think he was getting enough credit for that. And I, I feel like Dan, I feel pretty vindicated in, 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 you know, being on that Jack Sawyer train because he was down. I thought he was their best defender, not just in the cotton bowl, but really the last few weeks of the regular season too. I had a great game against Michigan in that loss, but Again, overall on the defense, um, pinned back by its weak special teams, we saw Jaden Ballard have no clue when and where to fair catch a football. I mean, it's they said the teaching is plant your heels at the eight. If it goes over your head, then let it go into the end zone. In high school, you learn you know the ten yard line. It's it's a basic punt returning thing, and Ballard failed to hold up to it on multiple occasions in this game. I mean, fair catching a ball at the five is pretty inexcusable. So, um, it, it, if it were one game, you could write it off. But the special teams have just been such an issue, and it's a spot that you can use to promote James freaking Laurinaitis to be your full time linebackers coach. You know, that's an obvious move that I thought you know, might be done before this season. Uh, but I think a move that really has to be done now, if you want to keep James on staff, he's going to be a much better recruiter than Knowles is. Knowles is, you know, he can develop linebackers fine, but he's never been that guy to get out there and really hit the recruiting trail. I think Laurinaitis gives you that on staff. 
um, and additional development being that he was in the league for so long. So, um, and had a very prolific career at Ohio state, obviously it's just a move that's so obvious. Um, I'm, I'm a little surprised it hasn't been made already, but I get it. Ryan day probably wants to respect his guy, send him out a little easier, set him up to get a job down the road. That's all well and good, but Parker Fleming needs to be off this staff and it probably needs to coincide with a promotion of James Laurinaitis. There's, you know, so much that, you know, we are going to be able to talk about here, you know, over the next eight months in terms of, you know, getting ready for 2024 and all the moves that are going to be made. And certainly, you know, we expect, you know, over the course of the next month, there could be coaching staff changes. There could be transfer portal additions. You know, we'll see uh, how everything all plays out here. You know, NFL draft decisions, all of that over the next month and we'll certainly be you know talking about those things week in and week out as we kind of put a bow on the 2023 season here just what's your overall assessment for the Buckeyes like if you had to grade this season for Ohio State Andy what grade would you give Ohio State uh c minus uh maybe a d plus I, I think it's hard to it's hard to give them above an, a grade that's above average uh, when you don't achieve any of the goals you set out to achieve. The Cotton Bowl, I think, could have had the chance to elevate uh, this season for Ohio State in a way of building momentum for next year. And I think you sit back and you look at the defense and you say, wow, they took the real step that they said they were going to take all year. The defense right now, if you get certain key guys back, uh, is going to stay a force, stay among the nation's elite next year. They proved they can do it against a prolific offense after, you know, we we were questioning how real the defensive development was after that Michigan second half, right? When Michigan was able to score on all four of its drives and kind of take control of the game there. And, you know, that loss certainly doesn't all fall on the shoulders of the defense at all, but wasn't what we'd seen from them all season. But outside that one half, this was a dominant Ohio State defense that won them several games, uh, particularly that Penn State game. And I think you look at that Penn State and Notre Dame win too, and you say, well, those are high-quality wins the Buckeyes got, so you can't. I'm not going to give them an F. Um, But when you don't beat Michigan, when your two most prevalent issues throughout the course of the season, never get addressed and end up costing you in the last two games. You know, we talked about offensive line and quarterback. I don't think you can grade it higher. I don't think you can grade it at sea level or higher because you can't call it an average or better season for Ohio State based on the standards of the program. Um, the standards that we've, Ryan Day, and we've stated so many times. So for me, it's it's a C minus. Dan, what about you? I'm going to give him a C. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, you're certainly not, giving them an A for this season and you know you can't give them a B I mean if uh, the way the season ended but you know I'm I'm gonna give them a C because you know they, they did win their first 11 games of a regular season um you know like you talked about the defense became you know one of the best in the country I mean I'd I'd I'm giving the defense somewhere in the A range. Maybe it's an A minus because of the way they played in the second half of the Michigan game. But I'm giving the defense uh, somewhere in that A range with how much they improved this year and became one of the best uh, defenses in the country. But you know, overall, I, I think it's a C. And 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 to be clear, like a C is not good enough. <laughs> okay, a C's you, we're not you're not looking for a C level performance out of 
out of Ohio State. And so, uh, you know, it's it, that's, you know, not a good. You're always striving for an A-level season. B-level season is one thing, but you don't want a C-level season. And so to me, you know, a C is fair. I think it's fairly average uh, of a season by uh, Ohio State standards. I mean, if, I mean, it has been the average here the past three years. This has been the standard that Ohio State uh, has gone 11 and two uh, with, with a loss to Michigan. Uh, but, uh, you know, certainly I think, uh, you know, it, it did not live up to expectations again for, for many schools, an 11 and two season would be an A or at least a B, but you know, at Ohio state, because of what those stated expectations are and the fact that Ohio state did not achieve those expectations, I, I give them a C. I, I I get where you're coming from too. Um, I, I, I think a C, uh, feels right to me. Uh, but we, you know, we both agree that, you know, the expectations for Ohio state are higher, uh, and, and they missed out on that opportunity to end the season with some positive momentum. You know, I think you came out of that season two years ago when Ohio state won the Rose bowl. And even though Ohio state finished that season with the same record, and even though Ohio state didn't beat Michigan that year, either it, 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 it had a different feel just because you ended the year on a positive note. Whereas I think right now, you know, kind of ever since that Michigan game, you've kind of had a negative vibe. And now, you know, you've got to wait eight months to to, to flip that. And so, uh, you know, it's definitely going to be a, you know, as as you've said, Andy, it's going to be a loud offseason in Columbus. And uh, I think, you know, we're going to learn a lot about Ryan Day and this coaching staff by how well they're able to navigate that and if they can bounce back in 2024, because uh, the road's not going to get any easier in 2024. You've got, you know, Oregon and Washington. I mean, a team that's playing in the national championship game on Monday, joining the conference next year. You've got USC and UCLA joining the conference. It's going to get a little easier to make the CFP because the CFP is expanding. But, uh, you know, it's not going to get easier to get to that mountaintop where Ohio State really wants to be. And so, again, uh, lots of time to talk about what's coming next for Ohio State. I'll ask you one more question to to kind of wrap up 2023. I think we could both agree that Marvin Harrison Jr. was Ohio State's team MVP this year. I don't know who else you would go with, but who would you say was your biggest positive surprise for this season or or what? Who or what can be player, unit, whatever? And what would you consider to be the biggest disappointment? Uh, I think it's uh, people and things we've touched on earlier. I, I think my biggest positive surprise um and there's a couple directions you could really go with this i think most of the options here are on defense but the i think i i want to go a little broader with it uh than just pointing to one player action i'm going to say ohio state's past defense as a whole and that's both the d line uh generating pressure getting after the quarterback even if their sack numbers throughout the year weren't a huge jump from previous seasons up front they you felt their presence a lot more in these games um and then obviously jack sawyer had the big cotton bowl but uh the just the ability to get after a quarterback and then the secondary living up to the billing as you know we thought coming into this year they had the potential um, even with how some previous seasons has played out to be among the best secondaries in the country. And, you know, they end up as the, as a, one of the one of, if not the best pass defense in the country. Uh, Denzel Burke, uh, when he was healthy, he missed a couple games in there. But when he was healthy, argument for the best cornerback in college football, 
Lathan was sound when he was in there. Josh Proctor, huge sixth-year breakout. I thought he was awesome, awesome for Ohio State this year. Jordan Hancock was a revelation at nickel. Davis and Benoson got better at that second cornerback spot as the year went on. Sonny Styles started strong, didn't finish as strong, but and you know you kind of start wondering what his future is going to look like at Ohio State positionally, but. Uh, overall, this, this the combination of this secondary and this pass rush, uh, I thought was one of the biggest, if not the biggest strength Ohio State had on the season. Uh, and I think that's probably the number one leap Ohio State took that you point to as, as the top thing. Biggest disappointment is the offensive line, Dan. I, I mean, I don't think it's a hard choice. We, we talked about all year before the season. We said it's the number one question. It's the thing that we're most concerned about. Uh, and coming out of the year, you're saying the same thing. Uh, it was obviously the number one thing that cost them in the Cotton Bowl, as we've pointed out many times. It was uh, something that cost them against Michigan. Uh, it cost them a lot of key turns this year. And, you know, I my expectations weren't that this Ohio State offensive line was going to be a contender for the Joe Moore Award, which goes to the best O-line in the country every year. But I thought, you know, they need to be, have one of the 25 best offensive lines in the country um, to at least just with the weapons that they had coming into the year, uh, with the potential of, of having a good quarterback, and overall McCord didn't play that bad, that you needed the offensive line that could at least not lose you games, not you know keep you in and, and keep you competitive so that those players could go out and make plays, and they just never reached that level. So those, those are my two biggest areas. Those are my, my biggest area of a pleasant surprise, my biggest area of you know something that disappointed me so uh, Dan what's what's your answer on both those fronts yeah I mean certainly hard to argue if the offensive line being the biggest disappointment I think I'll just take it out a little broader and and just the fact that this Ohio State offense had in my opinion the best wide receiver in school history and Marvin Harrison Jr. you had one of the most productive tight ends in school history and Cade Stover you know you have another fantastic wide out in Emeka Buka you have one of the most explosive running backs in the country in Travion Henderson. And we talked about it all offseason leading up to last year that Ohio State had the most skill position talent in the country in terms of wide receivers, running backs, tight ends. And with all that talent, Ohio State barely had a top 50 offense. I think just that as a whole, for me, is the biggest disappointment of this season. But you had that much talent on offense and you never found a way to, to utilize that talent and make the most out of that talent to have the explosive offense that you should have. And some of that goes back to quarterback play. Some of that goes back to offensive line. Some of that goes back to coaching and game planning. But you know that's why Ohio State needs to take a really hard look at its offense right now and figure out how to fix it. Because you know players like Marvin Harrison Jr. just, I mean, we know Ohio State has a lot of talent in that wide receiver room, but but guys like him just don't come around very often. You, when you have talent like that, you need to be able to utilize it and get the most out of it. And and you know Marvin was fantastic, but Ohio State did not get the most out of what it could have from from Marvin Harrison Jr. as a whole offense because the rest of the offense around him was not was not good enough. To, to perform up to its potential. And so I think to me, you know, that's the biggest disappointment. You know, I think in terms of surprises, I mean, I, I will, you know, zero in on a couple players there. I think Tyleek Williams is certainly a guy who, I mean, coming into the year, I, I didn't even think he would be a starter and he ended up being uh, their most consistently productive defensive lineman 
all year long. And so I think, uh, you know, he was certainly a big surprise. And then I'll, I'll just go back to Kate Stover as well. Just the continued jump that he made. We saw him perform well as a receiving tight end a year ago, but more, more than expected. He was already a positive surprise. I mean, this year he became the big 10 tight end of the year and a Mackey award finalist, which is not something I think anybody expected for Kate Stover coming into the year. And so I think, uh, those are two guys that stand out to me as guys who, uh, very much exceeded my expectations and had, uh, great, great years for Ohio state. And, uh, you know, you know, speaking of, uh, Cade Stover, uh, we do know that you know he's going to be moving on to the NFL draft, and Ohio State uh, did make its first transfer addition of the year on Sunday uh, to account for that with the commitment of Ohio University tight end Will Catch Merrick, and not the most flashy addition uh, for people who have been waiting for a you know big move in the transfer portal. This is probably not going to excite them. But I, I think it's a good addition. You know, when I've dug into it, I mean, admittedly, I had not heard of Wolf Merrick until he announced his commitment on Sunday. But digging into it since then, I think there's a lot of logic behind this move. You know, this is a guy who had 42 catches for 507 yards and two touchdowns over the past two seasons. And yeah, those numbers don't jump off the page. But if you look at Ohio State's tight end numbers before the past two years of Cade Stover, those numbers are pretty much in line with what Ohio State's starting tight ends were doing before the past couple years. And so I think those are solid numbers. Uh, I think he's graded out very well as a blocker, which is really what Ohio State needed as a tight end. I mean, I think tight end blocking, I mean, we talked about the offensive line. I think tight end blocking was a problem this year too. Um, and I and so I think Ohio State needed to bring in a veteran tight end who could help them in blocking. And I think Will Katzmarek's going to be able to do that. Uh, and he's got a lot of physical upside. He's 6'6", 256. You watch him on film. He's got some good athleticism. And so, you know, it's certainly not a move that's going to jump off a page in terms of, you know, adding a tight end from a Mac school with pedestrian statistics. But I do think this is a move that could prove to be important for Ohio State. Yeah, I think Kasmerik, uh, again, not a, like you said, not an addition that's going to get a lot of uh, praise, a lot of notoriety from Buckeye fans, but I think a helpful um, type of tight end that they don't necessarily have in the room right now. I mean, you, you think of, you know, they just added Damarian Witten in this last recruiting class. He's very much a receiving tight end. Jelani Thurman kind of has that mold where blocking is the side of his game that needs more development. G. Scott Jr. certainly we've seen over the course of his seasons that his receiving is farther along than his blocking. So I think having that uh, big physical blocking tight end is a piece that Ohio State might look to employ on some two tight end sets, um, a guy they can mix in to, to kind of help with the run game in certain areas. Um, so, you know, not again, not an addition that's like flashy at all, um, but something that it, it gives you another element in, the, in that tight end room uh, and gives you depth. So, uh, you know, not a bad player to have for Ohio State. On the flip side of those additions, Ohio State lost four transfers to the transfer portal. Um, freshman wide receivers Noah Rogers and Bryson Rogers, spelled differently on the on the last name Rogers. They're they're no longer in Mister Rogers' neighborhood, as, as Dan so joked uh, before. Uh, starting punter Jesse Mirko and fifth year D tackle 
Jaden McKenzie. McKenzie, a guy who uh, played sparingly in, in a few games this year, never really made an impact. It makes a lot of sense for him to him to leave. And I think Bryson Rogers was, you know, you they brought in. Brandon Ennis and Carnell Tate, and those were the two superstar receivers in that class. Noah was a very highly touted guy as well. Bryson was kind of more of a prospect that Heartline really liked, but didn't have necessarily the pedigree in terms of the stars and the rankings uh, that the others did. So his his transfer made more sense to me than Noah, although I think there is certainly a clog coming in Ohio State's receiver room when you talk about, you know, we both are confident Jeremiah Smith is probably going to start next year. Um, and Emeka Abuka might be coming back, of course, too. So, you know, I think the the depth chart just gets a little hairy for Noah. I think a guy that had a lot of talent that I think would have been exciting to see grow for Ohio State fans, maybe even Bryson, too. But um, their transfers make sense. I think it's, it's just always a stacked room for Ohio State. Uh, it's going to consistently shed excess weight year in and year out for that reason. We wouldn't be surprised to see another transfer or two uh, from the receiver's room before the year is up. Uh, and then uh, Mirko, I, I think, is... I, I mean, it, it's odd to see a starting punter leave a program, but I think it's probably a sign of what's to come in terms of Ohio State making a move on from Parker Fleming. That's just my guess. I have no intel on what Jesse's actual thought process was there. Um, but, you know, I think now punter is probably a position you might have to address in the portal because of Jesse's transfer. Maybe you swap punters with Missouri now, who you just played with, with their punter also entering the portal, portal and Ryan Riley Williams. So, uh, uh, yeah, those uh, th- just th- thoughts on those losses there, Dan. Yeah, I agree with all of that. You know, I think, you know, I think the thing that, you know, when you when you talk about those freshman receiver departures, I, I think it just kind of speaks to the reality now of college football and that, you know, it used to be, you know, until a few years ago, if you recruited consistently well at a position, you could really stockpile talent and have a ton of depth. It's becoming a lot harder to do that now for transfer portal because guys want to play and 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 it's hard to blame them for that. But it's you know it's a matter of you know a guy like Noah Rogers, you bring him in, you have this developmental plan of what he can become in year three and year four. But it's it's going to be harder to get guys there now if you don't have playing time available to them in year one and year two. And I think we've seen that now two years in a row with wide receivers. Ohio State has signed four receivers and two of them have left after one year. And so, you know, that's going to be the challenge for someone like Brian Hartline. He does such a great job of recruiting talent, but now the retention piece of it gets a little more difficult. And like you said, I mean, I think if you're talking about, you know, the 2024 wide receiver rotation, I don't think those departures make a huge impact, but it's more about the depth of a room and just the long-term development of that room. And, you know, I think you're, you're kind of seeing in that room perhaps more than any other on Ohio state's rosters, a bit of a survival of the fittest there where, you know, it's such the standard at that position is so high and so elite now that you've either got to rise to that standard quickly, or you're probably going to have to go somewhere else in order to play as much as you want. And I think even a Noah Rogers, even though he was a very highly touted recruit, may have seen that writing on the wall after just one year that if I stick around here, I might sit on a bench for another year or two. I want to go somewhere else and play now. 
Certainly. It makes a lot of sense from, uh, you know, the personal perspective and every year, you know, more freedom of player movement, more NIL, more transfer portal. Uh, I think you're just starting to see college football take this different shape of how influx the rosters can be. Development isn't really the direction the sport's moving anymore. You're you know, it's still going to be an important part of it, obviously, but just all the transfer portal flux, it's now becoming so ingrained that we see these situations where, you know, you're not going to be able to hold on to a guy that you like for down the road as much and, and really try and build around that top end talent that you have and um, use the portal. Uh, kind of, you know, moving on to the, so one of the last things before we get out of here, you know, we saw just the other night Michigan uh, beat Alabama in an overtime thriller. Uh, saw Washington beat Texas in another thrilling game that kind of came down to the last play there. This this is a little off the script, but we'll, you know one of the best playoffs I think that we've seen in the last year of the four team playoff. Probably the be- maybe the best. Just when you look at the quality of the two semifinal games, we haven't gotten a lot of that. Uh, been a lot of blowouts in the semifinals in years past for college football. That was not the case this year. Um, and four really high quality teams where we had actual debate over ho- who the four teams should be this season. But, you know, kind of just want to get into some national championship picks now. Um, so so for you, Dan, I, I have an inkling I, who, who you're taking, but who you taking in that in that national title game? Well, you know, I picked Michigan before of a year and I, I picked Michigan before the college football playoff started when we did this a few weeks ago. So I, I got to stick with my pick. I got I got to stick with Michigan now. I mean, I'm conflicted because, uh, you know, people have been listening all year. No, I've been a big fan of, of Washington all year long. I mean, Mike, Michael Penix is, is, is probably the most fun player to watch in college football this year. I mean, he's, uh, he's a stud, and, and that Washington team is a lot of fun. And so I think we're going to get a really good game on Monday. I won't be surprised to see it go either way. You know, I think, you know, you mentioned some of the controversy in terms of leading up to the CFP of who got in. You know, I think we can sit here now and feel like, okay, these are the two teams that deserve to be there. They're the only two undefeated teams. They're both 14-0 going into this game. I don't think there's going to be any question that a team that wins this game deserves to be the champion. You know, are they better than Georgia? I don't know. But Georgia lost. These teams didn't. And so, and they've now both beaten marquee teams and two thrillers of games to get to this point. And so, you know, whoever wins Monday, I think, you know, un- unequivocally, deserves to be the champion. I um, am sure of it. Just about all of our listeners are going to be big Washington fans on Monday night. But I, I said it before of a year. Uh, you know, I, I've just uh, had a feeling all year that this could be Michigan's year. But I just think, you know, all the pieces are there with, with all the experience they have. And they've just shown time and time again, you know, even with stuff that's happened, you know, off the field, they, they've just continued to get the job done week in and week out. And so I'm going to stick with that Michigan pick. Where are you going with it, Andy? I'm going Michigan too. Um, and it's a, it's a really tough call. Um, I, I was, I got both the semifinal games wrong. I picked, well, no, I did pick Michigan to win, but I ended up, I ended up taking Alabama at the last moment, uh, you know, right before the game. I thought I kind of changed my mind, but that was, that, that didn't turn out. Obviously, Michigan, I think it was clear that the sanctions galvanized them uh, more than anything, not the sanctions, but the allegations and Jim Harbaugh getting suspended by the Big Ten galvanized the team. They are as close knit a bunch. You can hate them 
if you want to, if you're an Ohio State fan, obviously, you know, most fans do. But I think you got to respect what they did this year. After everything that happened, I, I, who knows the extent of whatever went on. But without whatever it was, since they've gotten rid of Connor Stallions and everything else, they've just proven that they're one of the best teams in the country, if not the best. And a really complete team. Defense was absolutely smothering in that Alabama game. Offense, I mean, J.J. McCarthy is an interesting quarterback sometimes because he'll make throws that baffle you, where he just sails it over a guy's head. Uh, but then he makes some a ridiculous falling to his side, dropping a dime to a guy for a crazy catch type of play. And I, it just it just feels like Michigan's almost destined destined to win this thing. And if they do, then it's going to make for an even lo- louder offseason in Columbus, I think, and a louder stepping stone. It, it, for me, it's interesting, too, Michigan wins this game. I think it's the last hurdle they have to clear. They've obviously already taken control of the rivalry. They've won three games in a row. But it was the fact that they still hadn't achieved as much as Ohio, more than Ohio State in the Ryan Day era. Ryan Day hasn't won a national championship. He has been to national to a national championship. Michigan has now also been to a national championship. If Harbaugh goes out and wins one, it's well, Michigan just as a program has suddenly advanced past Ohio State. That will be an interesting narrative to talk more about in the offseason if Michigan does ultimately win. But here's the other thing. I have picked against Washington time and time again on this show, much to Dan's chagrin. And every time I end up being wrong, perhaps a good sign for Buckeye fans out there that I am picking Michigan in this game because my continued doubting of Washington and of Michael Penix. Um, has continuously bit me. So I I think that uh, you you don't want me picking Washington if you're an Ohio State fan out there. Yeah, I feel like both these teams kind of have that like team of destiny kind of feel. So it's it's just going to make this game really interesting on Monday night. Uh, I can definitely see it going either way. Like I said, we're both we're both picking Michigan. Uh, probably to our listeners' chagrin, but it's going to be a very interesting game Monday, and uh, we'll certainly talk about that next week. I mean. One way or another, this year's national champion is going to be in the Big Ten next year. So uh, that that speaks to the challenges that lie ahead for Ohio State in 2024. And we'll talk a lot more about that. Uh, we'll talk a lot about you know whatever news might develop on the Ohio State front here over the next week, whether that be coaching changes, NFL draft decisions, transfer moves, whatever that might be. We'll, we'll talk about all of that. Uh, we'll you know, talk about, you know, some of the other things that may uh, need to happen for the Buckeyes uh, to take that next step in 2024. I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking some Ohio State basketball coming up here as well as Ohio State is about to begin Big Ten play tonight with a game against Rutgers. And so Ohio State basketball season about to heat up here as well as football season winds down. And so plenty more to talk about on Real Pod Wednesdays in the weeks ahead. We hope you'll join us then.